Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be talking with you, talking to you. I have on the program today Mick Grantham. Her debut poetry collection is called Hardcore. It is available now from Short Flight Long Drive Books. It is excellent. And uh, I really, I, I got to say, I was talking to Joseph Grantham. So just so you know, I, like, I feel a little silly doing this, but I feel like I kind of have to. In full disclosure, Joseph Grantham is the brother of Mick Grantham. Joseph Grantham works for this show as its social media director. Joe Sr. and Patty Grantham have been to my house before. The, the, these are Joe and Mick's parents. <laughs> so I, just, I feel like I need to break down the Grantham family tree. At this point, I believe it is safe to say that they are the first family of American indie lit. <laughs> It's a mantle, you know, it rotates. I feel like this moves around, but right now, the Granthams are the first family of American indie lit. Both children are uh, fine writers, poets, mixed new collection, hardcore. I was talking about it, and I was trying to uh, define its appeal. It's one of these poetry collections that has a real narrative quality to it. It has distinct themes that it works on throughout the course of the collection, it has a story arc in terms of emotional development from poem to poem and from page one until the end. It has a real sense of character. You know, this is a very personal collection written uh, very much in Mick's voice. And it takes you someplace and leaves you better than before. So uh, just really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed Hardcore. I thought it would be a nice idea to begin today by hearing Mick read a selection from the book. So here she is reading a poem called Bad Poem. I did a bad thing, a messy thing. I did a bad thing and I made that into a messy thing and it all felt so good. Here I am. I am so fucked because it feels okay to be bad. I got a box in the mail. The box told me I was radiant, and so I thought I might be radiant. I found my grandmother's dildo in a drawer when I was cleaning out her bedroom after she did the big dying thing. 
It was purple and big and ribbed. I looked at the dildo for a long time, and I remembered her telling me once how she liked to be bad because it made life more fun, made things a little more interesting. I thought, that's cool. It's okay for Grandma to be bad. It's okay Grandma had a dildo. Grandmas should get to have dildos, and Grandmas should get to be bad. I want to be a Grandma. Maybe if I was a Grandma, it wouldn't be so bad to be bad. People might even cheer me on. People might say, hey, good for you, you only live once. But I don't think people say that about me right now. I wish I could regret my behavior. I don't. Maybe that's the baddest part about me. Someone told me, you're a badass, and I laugh so hard at them. Someone told me, we have impeccable timing, but they were being sarcastic. I have horrible timing. I know I could be on time if I tried, but I don't feel like it. I watched a kid at the corner store count my change and tell me I had $10,000, and that was wrong. I don't have $10,000. I don't think my bank account would know what to do with that sort of number. I had 10 cents. It was the change I had. I wanted cigarettes, and the change made it even. He was wrong. I'm always trying to make everything even. I'm always trying to get even with you. You were bad, so I'm going to be bad. I'm going to be badder than bad. I'm going to be the worst. Okay, there you have it. That is Bad Poem, a selection from Hardcore, the debut poetry collection by Mick Grantham. Really enjoyed it. Fun talking with her. That conversation is imminent. First, a quick shout out to today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press, publisher of the novel Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. It is a New York Times bestseller. It is a Reese uh, Reese Witherspoon book club pick. It is a Nervous Breakdown book club pick. I just spoke with Patricia Engel on this program this past Sunday. Infinite Country is an excellent novel about what it means to be undocumented in the United States of America. It is timely. It is riveting. It is heartbreaking. It is beautifully rendered. I recommend it. Infinite Country by Patricia Engel, available online and in stores from Avid Reader Press. So now it's time for my conversation with Mick Grantham. Her debut poetry collection, again, is called Hardcore. It is available now from Short Flight, Long Drive Books. Such a pleasure talking with her and sharing this with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Mick Grantham. When I was like 18, I got a root canal done, and the dentist was like, okay, so this crown we're putting on, it'll only last for... Uh, 10 years and then you're going to have to get it replaced and then like 10 or 10 years later I guess yeah a few years ago um, was 10 years later and I had like felt like the crown was loose and I was a little concerned about it but not too concerned and one day Okay, this is also maybe like just a character thing that's kind of gross, but I was flossing my teeth on the way to work. I was running really late to my waitressing <laughs> shift. That's a different conversation. Um, wait, 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 wait. You were like while driving? Yeah, I'm just like trying to get to my shift. And also like the restaurant, I didn't need the restaurant that I used to work at was only a few blocks from my house, but I was like running really late. So I was like, I guess I'll drive to work today. 
and I'm flossing my teeth in my truck and I flossed that area where the crown was and the tooth fell out and I was like you know freaking out like all of a sudden in my hand I have a tooth which was like my crown just broke off and the tooth broke off with the crown did, um, it, did it have a uh, mercury in it was it a mercury filling or anything or is it, I guess it's just like a porcelain crown it's just a porcelain crown and it just like it didn't hurt at all it just fell out it was like a, literally a tooth just fell out of my mouth and I just freaked out and I was like calling my restaurant manager and I was like listen I'm gonna be late like my tooth fell out of my mouth and he's just like laughing at me thinking that uh it was just another reason why I'm late like I would always be late to work and so he was kind of laughing at me and when I finally got there I was like look in my mouth there's a hole now where my tooth was and like the whole tooth you know that I ended up having to get like the rest of it pulled out but you couldn't really tell and yeah, it freaked me out so much. And that whole night at work, too, I was I was like finally easing into my waitressing shift and forgetting about the tooth. And then one of my coworkers, she would come up to me and just be like, are you doing all right? You good? Do you need anything? And I'd be like, I'm good. And they're like, all right, cool. But remember when your tooth fell out on your way to work today? And I'd be like, God damn it. And what was it? Is it a back, like back bottom tooth or top yeah, tooth? You can really see it. It's like a back molar on the top yeah on the top you can't really see it so what um, do you get a replacement what do you do these days when you lose a tooth okay i haven't even gotten a replacement because it costs ten thousand dollars like even if you don't even if you have you know dental insurance it still costs ten thousand dollars because it's not considered it's it's considered like um what do you say like a cosmetic or whatever it's not important so i've just been waiting till i get ten thousand dollars <laughs> um <laughs> I, actually should, like you should go fund me that i feel like yeah. i think we like, if somebody out there wants to start a GoFundMe for mix missing tooth i think we could maybe make that happen for you yeah. and then like i like i had like half oh, man it just like this tooth drama was like i knew i had to get the rest of it pulled and i waited for like a few months to get it pulled actually maybe even longer than that it's this is so just disgusting but I hate the dentist and I was so freaked out and I finally did get it pulled and then that night I had to go to this other waitressing job and I had to give a speech and I was like all high on like my tooth painkillers giving a speech at someone's rehearsal like wedding dinner that these strangers I didn't know for this one restaurant job I had and um I was like taking everything in me to not be like, and I just got a tooth pulled today, like happy wedding. But uh, <laughs> I did not do that. Thank God I didn't do that and ruin their wedding dinner. But uh, yeah, so that's like the tooth drama with that tooth. And then all through quarantine, like the beginning of quarantine, I've started to like think about the teeth, like shifting around in there. And I would just, I was like convinced that they were all moving to the left side of my mouth where and they were like my the teeth that I have now were going to fill up that hole and they haven't moved. I like went to the dentist and he was like, they're not going to move that fast. Oh, good. But they will eventually. I think so. 
So I better, somebody better donate. Like, let's get this GoFundMe going. <laughs> I think we should. I think I'm going to, yeah, I think we're going to do that and we're going to get you a tooth. And by the way, what do they put? Is it a ceramic tooth that they put in there? Like a, a veneer? What do you do? What do you call them? I think they do, they do an implant. So they like put a metal implant into your mouth and you have to wait a few months for that to like connect to your bone uh-huh. and uh once it connects to your bone then they put another crown on like a probably a porcelain crown a tooth from a, a mouth of a, like someone who's lost I don't someone's know. like donated their teeth <laughs> when you donate hair you get to pick they just pull a drawer out like which tooth do you want i'll uh, take what i can get yeah yeah right there should be uh lost a tooth not like that well have you ever had a tooth pulled though as an adult? I don't think so. You don't have to say. No, I mean, I, okay. I'd be happy to tell you if I did. I, I mean, I had my wisdom teeth out, but that was a long time ago. And, yeah, and then uh, they tell you, like, don't smoke because then you can, like, pull out the blood clot or whatever. I don't know about that. I made it's it through. Really... Yeah, okay. I remember, those, I remember those wounds. Like, I remember, like, you know, having those wounds in the back of my mouth when they were healing up. I I don't know if I smoked. I can't remember. Probably I did. Yeah. It's pretty like, oh, it's so weird to have a tooth missing from your mouth. <laughs> Some so, people have more teeth missing. I don't know. Okay. So let me ask you, medically, do you, like do you, you said you don't like going to the dentist. Do you have like any kind of phobia around medical stuff or doctors? Does it make you skeevy to get shots? Well, I don't know. Like, I made fun of, you know, my brother Joey, he is a little bit of a hypochondriac, and I kind of, like, make fun of him about that. But I think, I don't know. I've, like, had, well, I've I've been, like, getting some, like, blood work done recently, and I get kind of freaked out about needles and stuff. But I'm not, I'm, I don't, I think I'm just really curious about my body and, like, how to take care of it. So I don't get too freaked out. Women's health is also so invasive. You know, like you go to a doctor, if you go, you know, just going to a gynecologist can be really invasive. Uh, I mean, I've been through like, you know, as a a husband, I've been through the child uh, birth process and like also those like pre-appointments, you know what I'm saying? So I've actually sat in many a, gynecological exam it's it's a lesson yeah and I feel like all of any appointment like that I'll get nervous if I'm not comfortable with the doctor so that's the only time I get freaked out about doctor appointments the dentist I just because of all my tooth drama you know I really don't like the dentist and also the dentist that I go to just the office is is just fucking wild. It's just crazy on St. Claude, which is a really busy street in New Orleans, um, right in the Ninth Ward, right before you go over the bridge into the lower Ninth Ward. And um, it just seems like when I sometimes it's hard to be calm right there because there's people coming in and out of the office a lot. Um, hey, you know what? Just like stopping in. I'm just having a thought here, Mick. Uh, yeah. I have an uncle who's a dentist in Louisiana. 
Hook a girl up. Let's get a tooth. Let me see what I can do. <laughs> I wonder where he's the dentist at. He's in uh, Morgan City, not too far. Oh, yeah, that's not very far. Yeah, it's south yeah. Louisiana. But, uh, Lafayette, kind of. Uh, I'd have to look at a map. It's right down there. It's right down there on the Gulf. Um, but yeah, let me, let me check in about, maybe he's got some extra teeth lying around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's get the process started. Um, so, okay. So you have a tooth on the cover of your book. I imagine you weighed in on that or was that something that the cover designer extracted, pun intended, from... I- I really wanted a tooth on the cover. That was like the only thing that I cared about being on the cover was a tooth. And actually, um, Chelsea Martin did the cover and her husband, Ian, who you've had Chelsea Martin on before. Multiple times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she did the cover. And um, I just, I really wanted the tooth to be on there because as I was working on the book too, I started to think like teeth, represent so many different things uh to me in the book like there's a lot of loss in that book uh that's what I, yeah so, i feel like there's like when you lose a tooth like this isn't the only thing that it makes me think of but it does make me think of death it's like bodily decay mm-hmm. the, the the transience of the human form you know the way that um you know this just like not to get gross about it but eventually it just turns into like a stinking, <laughs> like, like rotting yeah. carcass, you know, like it's worth, I think it's worth considering that sort of stuff. Like I like to remember that, uh, in a weird way maybe because, um, you know, it sort of wakes me up from the, the sort of trance of everyday life. It's easy to get lost in bullshit. Yeah. The tooth stuff, like remembering the nasty shit in life. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's Buddhist too. Like, I'm always reading and listening to Buddhist stuff, and they're always like, "There's a chant that, th- that you're supposed to do. It's like hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, and it's just to like remind you that you're you're impermanent." Um, and then they also use that sort of stuff if like you're like experiencing <laughs> if you're experiencing like lust or you know, you're really fixated on somebody or you're unrequited or something. It's like, well, just imagine them as a corpse. Um, and then they also use it as a way to like, what's that? I said, that's kind of fucked up. (laughs) Or just like, or like, or just like imagine them like, you know, there's all sorts of like all the different bodily functions that we go through as a way to sort of like wake yourself up from that trance or, you imagine like your your beloved if you have like a spouse or partner it's like you know if you imagine them as a corpse it's like oh god you know there's no time for pettiness you know we're uh I, that's so true it's also anytime i'm like fighting with someone i really love i try to just think about stuff like that where i'm like we don't have that much time like what if something crazy were to happen right now like you are leaving we're fighting and you're going out to run an errand right now but you could just die in a car accident i think about that stuff too i'm always like i like i don't like to leave situations unresolved for that reason because then it's like what if something happens and this is the last thing we say to each other i just yeah i want to try to avoid those kinds of scenarios yeah i remember when I was little when I was like uh, 
probably, well, not that little. I was a teenager or something, and I was having, like, a wild fight with my parents. And Joey, he was really always just wanting everybody to get along and never stir the pot, and I just didn't give a shit. I was, like, wanted to raise hell. And me and my parents were screaming at each other, and Joey came out and started <laughs> crying and was like, can't we all get along? Like, you guys could die. And... And this is how you would end, like, the conversation. And I always, now, ever since, it was so sweet and sad, and it really did make us all stop fighting, uh, that now I think about that so often if I am having an argument with someone or I just don't want to say anything I'd regret if anything bad were to happen. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So were you a Hellraiser as a youngster? Sort of. I, I could have been worse, but... Could have, I, been, yeah, could have been better. I, I, probably. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't know. Maybe being a... It must be just crazy to have a teenage daughter get ready for it. I know it's coming. Uh, it's coming. It's like my daughter's 10 and I'm just like, Oh shit. We're like clinging to the last moments of where she's just a little girl. Yeah. You want to be free and so bad. I mean, that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be trusted and have responsibility, but I was not responsible at all. And, uh, there was no reason to trust me at all. Uh, but I wanted autonomy, I guess that's what I, I, I feel that I was the same way. Uh, I definitely, I've always had like that kind of loner streak or just like, I got this, like, I don't need, I don't like my, I didn't even let my mom walk me to kindergarten on the first day of school. Like we lived near my school and I was like, I got this. You know, like, she, she loves to like hit me with that story. Like I would not let her walk. Um, but I feel like when you, like when I got to the end of high school, I was so ready to get out and, just not have to answer to anybody. Um, I guess that's natural. You want your kids to be like that kind of. Yeah. I did a lot of like sneaking out. Uh, I was friends with these kids that were really had, their parents had a lot of money and they had a lot of money. So they always had like a lot of nice drugs. So we were always with them um, doing the drugs that their parents got them or whatever. Uh, <laughs> That's how it seemed to me. I have, I'm sure that's not how it actually was, but 
Um, Cause I was just like, where is all this money coming from? Like, uh, yeah. And a lot of sneaking out for dumb reasons. Like I remember once we snuck out of the house there were these people that were sitting in trees over on like the UC Berkeley campus. Uh, so that way they, they were going to bowl. Some company was going to come bulldoze these trees down. And so people were living in the trees. Um, so we snuck out and like ate mushrooms and went to go look at the tree people and just looked at them for the night. That was it. It was just so lame. And then I got tired and I went home to my parents' house at like 4 a.m. And my dad was like, what are you doing home? I thought you were having a sleepover. And I was like, oh, I was, but I just, I wanted to come home early. I just woke up and he was like, huh, at 4 a.m.? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Oh, your poor father. I mean, like that's, I used to do similar stuff. I snuck out a ton starting in like junior high which my parents never knew about. I didn't get caught until I was a senior in high school. And by that point, I just stopped caring about the details. So I, I was sloppy. Uh, and I remember like, I just would come in, say goodnight to my parents and then like go right back out. And my parents one night just happened to hear me leave. And they were like, wait, did he just leave again? And they stayed up all night and waited for me. Um, but what my friends and I used to do, especially when we were younger, was just like walk around on a golf course. Like, we didn't even have a plan. We were just like, we just wanted to be out late, and that was enough. Yeah, I think it's just like being out late, having, like, cigarettes, uh, having, like, any kind of, like, drug that will get you a little bit high, even if it's just weed, and walking around. It's no, all... we, we didn't even have the cigarettes or the drugs, at least when we were oh, younger. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we were... <laughs> have been really crazy. We were just like walking around outside and like doing, I don't even know what we were doing, but um, I don't know. My sisters didn't do that shit. I was the only one who did it. I don't think, yeah, I don't think Joey ever, I, well, I think it was probably different for him. Like, I don't think he wanted to. Or if he if he even had to worry about sneaking out, I don't think my parents would have cared. Yeah, it's it's different, and maybe I hate I hate being like it's because I'm a girl, but uh, I think probably it's different. Yeah, I mean, I can say. I mean, I don't know. I I don't want either of my kids out in Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, after like nine nine p.m., their curfew is going to be nine p.m. Yeah. But my daughter, yeah. especially, like. There's just too many creeps out there, you know, like it's uh, it's a little scary to think of your child out at large after after dark by themselves or I don't know. Yeah. Oh, there's a big plane going overhead. You might hear it. Oh, yeah. We live right next to like an Air Force place or a naval base. I don't know what it is. So you're in New Orleans. Yeah, we live in this little neighborhood called Holy Cross. Are you familiar with this neighborhood at all? No. It's just in the lower ninth ward, right on the levee. Um, but it's a really sweet little neighborhood. It kind of feels like a, the country within the city. That's like how we feel down here. Because um, it's really quiet. It's not, there's not like, the French Quarter is, is not close by. Um, but it's still bikeable. Like, it's like probably like a mile and a half bike ride, I guess, to the French Quarter from here. That's good. That's but a... you've walked around in New Orleans a bunch, so, right? Yeah. No, I've been I've been to New Orleans yeah. probably more than I've been to any 
major city outside of Los Angeles. I'm trying to think, but I, I, you know, my folks are from Louisiana, so I grew up going down there. Yeah, so like then you know like the Bywater neighborhood. I'm sure. So we're right next to the Bywater. The only thing that's really separating us is the canal. So there's just a little bridge uh that you have to cross to get to our neighborhood, but it's not like it's not like the Golden Gate Bridge or anything. It's just a drawbridge. Uh But yeah, that bridge will really fuck you over if you need to be somewhere on time cuz like <laughs> I feel like every time I need to leave Holy Cross, the bridge is up, and I'm just, like, waiting for the bridge to go down. What, like letting boats through? Like it's, like, locks or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, letting boats through. What uh, what brought you? Because you grew up in Northern California, like in suburban San Francisco, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. now you're in New Orleans, and you've been there for a decent bit of time. Like, what? how did you get down there? Yeah, I've been here for seven years or so. Um I actually, I don't think this is that rare of a story. There's so many people like that have done this, but I visited a friend here. One of my best friends was living here. And so I visited him and I just moved here six months later. It was really kind of fast. Um, but I wasn't in college. I wanted to go back to school. And so I figured if I went back to school, then um, I could move like I might be able to get out of the Bay Area because I was living in Oakland for a while or for a really I guess it was yeah a few years I was living in Oakland and um I just wanted to be away from it just was so expensive to live there and I felt like I just could not I felt really angry there people I think who live there around this time it was at like 2012 2013 2011 it was so techy. It still is like that, but it felt like really new. Like the tech, this new wave of tech people was uh, overtaking a lot of like San Francisco and Oakland. And it felt like all my friends were always angry about the techy people and um, stuff like that. So I just didn't want to feel pissed off all the time. Yeah. And then New Orleans, it's like you walk down the street and everybody says hi. Uh, you know, there's so much life here. Um, and I just felt a pull to the city. And my dad went to college here, too. And uh, he always talked about the city in this, like, kind of, like, romantic way about New Orleans. And now I'm just, I can't imagine really living anywhere else. Yeah, it's a great city. It's such a culturally rich city in, in a distinct way, especially in the context of the United States, where I feel like yeah. a lot of city, I mean, every city's its own special snowflake, but New Orleans is extra special. Yeah, it really is like, it's cheesy sounding, but it really is so magical. And it's not, you know, I think a lot of people who live here or have spent like a lot of time here could probably agree with this but with all of this beauty and um life there is like a lot of like darkness here too because of the history of this city and um I think the essence of that lingers here um so I think I've experienced some of like the really hardest things I've I've had to go through like alone in this city by myself you know um but still feeling held by the city. 
also at the same time. And then also just experiencing like my happiest moments here too. Um, that I couldn't really have like anywhere else, like just dancing in the street, listening to music, you know, uh, that is like one of the most like beautiful things I think in life yeah. doing that. So really not being self-conscious if you look cool or not, um, or just, just totally free and untethered. Like that is also possible. Well, and I, I feel like New Orleans, like New Orleanian culture celebrates, uh, fun or what's the, you know, they do a good job of celebrating and it's like a, cultural value like to make time for that in ways that it isn't elsewhere like i think oh totally like mardi gras is all about that i think people don't that don't live here or like haven't experienced it but mardi gras is way longer than just fat tuesday it's like a few weeks and it's such a release i think to have that time like um just spiritually it's such a release um even if you're not you know you can do drugs and it's great. <laughs> um, and like, there's so many like beautiful, like colorful things to see. And when you're on drugs, it's amazing, <laughs> but you don't have to be, you don't have to have that kind of lifestyle. You didn't have to do that to like experience this, this really like spiritual release of Mardi Gras, which is kind of what it is where it's just like letting go of all of your like demons inside of you or, um, it's like just a cleanse, basically, I think. And then you rest after for 40 days. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's like right before Lent, right? That's yeah, the whole... yeah. It was weird this year because like, it felt like there was a lot to grieve this year. And I think that's like part of Mardi Gras also is just um, grieving a little bit um, and honoring like people who have passed away that you love during the year is like a part of it also. Well, and I feel like just that like communal human celebration out in the streets, everybody doing it as like a like a cultural exercise. It the, the fact that it's so pervasive and so embraced by pretty much everybody, not just in New Orleans but in Louisiana, uh, mm-hmm. it's really unique to that state. Um, yeah, you know, because there are Mardi Gras parades in every little town all over the place. It's not just on Bourbon Street, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, like, to have that kind of event with everybody having a hand in it sort of makes people feel connected in ways that, like, by comparison, like, Los Angeles has nothing of that sort. There's nothing here binding anybody to anybody. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, no, totally. You're absolutely correct. Like, it, it definitely brings people together. That's why, I, you know, I think it was really sad this year it just it was really sad not having a Mardi Gras because of COVID um but you know it's way better to not have a Mardi Gras than for everybody to get sick which is what happened in 2020 uh if there's ever a if there was ever a super spreader event it's Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras it was the whole city though that is such a sad thing I think because um I'll send you this this like 20-minute documentary about, it's called The Day the Music Stopped. It was on BBC. Um, and it's just about New Orleans and what happened during that Mardi Gras because no one knew, no one told anybody about coronavirus that it was even here. No one really knew 
about it. Like people had known it had come to the United States, but no one was informed. The city never told anybody that um, that coronavirus was in New Orleans. And I don't, I don't even know actually, even if like our city knew, even if the government in our city even knew, but so parades just went on and, um, it just, and it was like a really great celebration, but then everybody got sick and so many people died. And if they had just been given this information up front, then like lives could have been saved. And did you, New Orleans, did you, uh, did you get it? I did not get sick, but I had friends that got this weird, they were like, who has the post Mardi Gras flu? Anybody? And, uh, I wonder if I like, I kind of am interested to get an antibody test because one of my really good friends, he, uh, he was really sick during Mardi Gras season last year. And he kept trying to call out of work and being like, I, I can't come in. I have like really bad chest pain and I'm like, can't breathe. And it's like all the symptoms of COVID <laughs> and they were like, you have to come into work. I'm sorry, but you have to work. You can't just not work. Oh. And he worked all of his shifts. And then he just recently, he tested positive for the antibodies. So he had, that means, yeah, he had the antibodies or whatever, the COVID antibodies. I think that's how you say it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But and, um, I feel like I have family, like I have family in New Orleans and I'm, you know, uh, Carrie, my wife is on Instagram and she's like telling me, this is how I view things on Instagram. She either shows it to me or she just tells me what she saw, but she's like, yeah. you know, your family in Louisiana, the, the, everyone's out. Like their kids are out. No one's wearing a mask. Everyone's at like soccer games. And I feel like things are different in different parts of the country in terms of response. Like Los Angeles has been, California in general has been pretty locked down. Uh, like what has been your experience of New Orleans throughout this after the, you know, after everybody sort of came to grips with the virus and, uh, like it, it, you know, it also seems like a city like New Orleans, which is pretty small and walkable, especially down in the French quarter and so social. And so like, there's so many good bars <laughs> and live music, yeah. all that kind of stuff. It just seems like, Oh man, what a tough place to have to deal with this pandemic. Like, how has it, how has it been as time has progressed? Well that's kind of what that documentary is a little bit about the day the music stopped, like just how all of a sudden just the city got really quiet, you know, and I, I don't, in my neighborhood, um, I just kind of stayed down in Holy Cross. Um, and we didn't really go anywhere unless we needed to get groceries and just essential supplies. Um, but like my restaurant at the very beginning was closed. Um, and so we were kind of just not doing anything and we would go on like long walks on having the levee right here was great just because we could just go walk out on the levee and there's a lot of space. So, um, that was really nice. And only up until recently have I like gone out into the French quarter a little bit. Um, but I always wear a mask, uh, but I am like, there's a lot of people, a lot of tourists in the French Quarter where I'm just like, oh, cool, COVID's over. Like, right. Uh, and like, uh, you know, Max, my partner, he plays in a jazz band. That's how he makes his living. And 
they've just started to play music again on Frenchman Street outside of a bar, DBA. They're like letting the jazz band play outside for tips. And that's, that's great. Like I've, that's, I mean, the first time to see live music felt so good, but you know, you have to wear a mask and a lot of people don't do that. And it's humid. It's humid down there and you get a, a mask on. I feel like that's a lot, especially in the warmer months. Yeah. It's been like nice lately, but I don't think they can do it in the summer. What's, uh, um, what's Max's band's name? Let's give them a plug. Oh yeah. So he plays in this band Tuba Skinny, which is like a great traditional jazz band. Um, they're pretty awesome. They get to like, I'm just in awe of Max's life because he just plays in this jazz band and he really loves it and he gets to travel the world with them and actually make like a pretty good living uh, doing that. And yeah, so that's Tuba Skinny. And then he has his own band. That's just Max and the Martians, but pretty cool i guess That's awesome is it like new orleans jazz or like classical jazz i don't uh it's like new orleans yeah they play a lot of new orleans songs um i suck at like describing me too me too I, I, as soon as i started that line of conversation i was like oh shit i just stepped in it <laughs> yeah um uh but the, yeah i don't know like they play like uh I, like Dixieland, Dixieland, and um, like old like uh, standards, like when the Saints go marching in. <laughs> no, yeah, they play with every night. Every night they close with when the Saints go marching in. It's just so yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, they no, it's like a pretty cool. It is like a really fun band though. They have like a washboard player. I'm trying to paint a picture in your mind. They have a washboard player. They have a banjo player. They've got a trumpet player. So, like, if you're, if you know what jazz is, like, well, and no, world. like, I, I know I enough know. to, I know this is what I do know. I know that New Orleans as a musical city is, it has few peers. Like, the music there is so good. Um, yeah. Like, you can go into any, you can stumble into any bar on Frenchman Street and hear just like, like outstanding bands play. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's hard not to get caught up in it when you're down there. Like, even if you've never listened to jazz in your life or been to a jazz show, like if you go to New Orleans and see it, like it's pretty easy to connect. Like you, you get it like almost right away, um, and it's just wonderful. Like I love that part of it. Yeah, it's really fun. I wonder, like, yeah, sometimes before when I would walk down Frenchman Street, like this is even before I think I lived here when I was just visiting. And um, you, I walked into some bar and they were playing like Zydeco music in the bar, um, you know, with like the accordion and it's and all this stuff. And I was like, this is great. Like, I'm loving it. And uh, I went home and I like, tried to I was like listening to Zydeco at home. And I was like, I don't this doesn't fit like this doesn't feel the same in my little like Oakland. Apartment. No, no, no. <laughs> the place that I was going to say, too, is like the place is the place is very inextricably linked with the music um mm. but not just jazz like you said like there's zydeco which is cajun um which i have mm. i was talking to an uncle of mine i'm doing this project where i interview my aunts and uncles to like create a family record and i don't mm. know enough about my family tree like i don't i've never done the dna thing or whatever and i'm too creeped out by that but my uncle was telling me about my you know my roots and um i've got a lot of cajun a lot of French Cajun blood 
which uh, I didn't realize that, you know, I knew I had some, but I didn't realize how, just how Cajun I am. Wow. Yeah. It'd be interesting to learn more about that too, just because like the Cajun history is so cool. It's right. Have you been out like to Lafayette in that area at all? I don't think so. Like both my parents are from, my mom's from just outside of Baton Rouge. My dad grew up in Morgan city, which is down South Louisiana and then family in Baton Rouge and new Orleans. Um, I have some family in Lafayette, you know, in other parts of Louisiana, but not like that immediate, like grandparents or aunts and uncles, first cousins. It's like more distant than that. Um, but all throughout Louisiana and it's, uh, I don't know if you've never been there. It's just different. Uh, like it feels like it's its own thing happening, uh, especially New Orleans. It feels like it's its own thing happening. And uh, I, I guess like I always say this, but I'm like always like I don't think I could handle the heat. That's such a stupid thing to say, but I guess you figure it out. You just adapt, right? I don't know. I love the heat now. I didn't think. I mean, you know, I'm raised in Northern California. I did not think I would like living in hot weather but i when i moved here i moved here in august in the when it so it was so hot yeah and it was like you can't i was like i can't breathe outside it's so hot um but now i love it i'm like oh my hair and my skin looks so good <laughs> like right. I feel myself in the summer um, it's like a heat. It's yeah. like a, it's like an enveloping heat it's like so humid like you go outside and that air just like sits on you you know yeah, yeah. But everywhere you go, it like is super air conditioned and Right. I mean, that's like fun in the su- the summer in New Orleans is kind of fun cuz I always stay here in the summer and a lot of people leave um and like to get away from the heat or they take their summer vacations and there's just there's not there's not really any tourists here so the city's pretty quiet and um it's kind of nice. It's like all locals yeah. pretty much and it it just feels just really nice walking around the quarter in the summer and like you just stop into a bar and grab a beer and keep walking and that's just great like drinking a beer I don't even like beer but like in the summer an ice cold beer on a really hot day is just good. so good there's <laughs> and I like that There's they nothing. I like that they treat you like an adult in New Orleans. You can walk around on the street with a beer. It's not like a like there's no open carry law or whatever, or you know what I mean? Open carry alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> you can carry a gun and a beer at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you can. So. Didn't they do that in LA though now? Like you can have a beer walking around. I certainly like hope you- so. I just, it just gets ridiculous. It's like, are we really like, I don't like the infantilizing quality of laws like that. Like I get that you don't want to have unruly drunk people, you know, causing trouble, but I don't see how much of a difference it makes. Most people, You'd rather have them walking anyway. You don't want them to be in their cars. Like, let them walk with a beer. Yeah, but the problem is here they also have, like, drive-through daiquiris. (laughs) So I don't know anybody who doesn't, like, drink and drive, like, and go through a drive-through daiquiri place. Like, you're not going to take a sip out of that daiquiri? It's a different culture. It's a different culture. My, like, nieces and – or my, you know, my cousins, I don't know what their children would be. I think they're my first (laughs) – cousins once removed but you know my cousin's kids play little league and they have like a full bar at at the t-ball field yeah like everything is about like there's so much in new orleans you mean yeah yeah i mean i feel like that 
everywhere is like, well, there'll be a bar there. So even for kids events and stuff, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty funny. It's definitely nice like to not, my lifestyle has changed a lot in the past year and a half and have not been drinking that much, which is nice. Unless you're really committed to it. I mean, I know it's some of it's cultural. So if you live in New Orleans, you'll probably drink more than somebody who lives in like, you know, I don't know, some other place. But uh, you also, as a function of age, like I just got to a point where I couldn't do the hangovers. Uh, maybe I'm just, you know, made of weak sauce, but it gets harder. I can't do that. I mean, now I have a few drinks and I'll be like, I have a really bad migraine the next day and I just can't function like that. Yeah. I can't do it. And I don't like that. I don't like losing a day. Like I'm too impatient for that. Like I don't want to get the flu as a result of like, no, and it becomes this whole thing where you just, you get really like, I'll get really depressed and just be like, yeah, why you... did I waste like my night doing that? Like... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, listen, I like to have a drink, but I just like, you know, the days of going completely crazy. Like I can't, it's a, it's an age thing. It's a, there's a time in life for that. I feel like. Yeah. And now that you're 30, Mac, it's over. Yeah. But sometimes it is nice to have like a release of just like drinking a bunch of wine and. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like I'll get too great. that's like, I've always had this thing where I will start off drinking a little bit and then I'll just be like, what else can we do? Like, how crazy can we get? And I'm just like, I can't keep doing that and living like that. So. Yeah. I mean, it catches up with you. It catches up with you if you do it too much every once in a while fine but like i have this like dream of being like a really like elegant and sophisticated pothead like one of these people who processes pot really easily and they just like become like kind of a better version of themselves they're just like happier and calmer and yeah they can do it i'm not like that though as much as i would love to be like that i just turn i mean i can have fun but i i feel it the next day i'm very hypersensitive to the and I've tried this so many times. I think people who listen to this show enough probably know this saga. But like, the truth is that I can't do it. And I wish that I could. I don't even know why I wish that I could. But like, I just feel like it would be cool to be like Seth Rogen, just like just constantly smoking weed. He's a millionaire. Maybe a different thing. Have you tried tinctures? Maybe you got to become like a tincture guy. Maybe I don't even know what a tincture is. Is it just liquid? You just put it in your water or something? <laughs> Tinctures are awesome. They're just, it's herbal medicine, but you can get them uh, with made from all different plants and they can make you feel like, you know, if you want to relax, you can take a, you know, uh, well, you could take a California poppy tincture. That's very relaxing. Is <laughs> um, it? Yeah, it makes you super sleepy. Uh, I like taking that tincture. What is it? Uh, okay, but I don't even understand what a tincture is. You put this in your, it's liquid? It's liquid. It's basically like a plant and you soak it. I guess it would be like distilling it in alcohol in a like foolproof alcohol. And you do that for about two weeks and then you extract like this medicine from the plant and you take it in a little dropper form. Damn, that sounds involved. But it's so cool. It's like, it's so, it's, you know, it's like herbal medicine. So it does like work in your body and heal you and i'm really into all that stuff so do they have weed they, tinctures like can you get like weed? Yeah, weed they have weed tinctures i don't take the weed tinctures because i don't really like weed that much but uh i just like to say that i just like to say the word tincture i think i'm into yeah, it on those up. 
That's what it, I was like taking my tincture a bunch at one point and someone was like, I was like, man, this is so relaxing. And they're like, yeah, it's alcohol. Like that is why you are relaxed because you're. Okay. So you take it in a dropper. You've got a tincture and a dropper. What is your tincture? What is your preferred tincture? Well, I've been taking like this blend. Um, oh, you might hear one of my dogs. Uh, That's all right. I've been taking this blend that is uh, with lemon balm and milky oats. And um, I'm trying to think of what else is in it. I haven't taken it in a while because I ran out. Um, but like lemon balm is really uplifting and uh, makes you happy, kind of makes you feel a little happier if you're in a slump of depression or anxiety and milky oats can kind of calm your brain a little bit. So it's just a blend of these plants, um, plants in the, in the medicine, I guess. And how much, how much tincture, how much tincture is required to get the full tincture experience? You take like two to three dropper fulls, like three times a day, but they're all, it's all adaptogens. Usually it's like adaptogens. So it takes a while. You have to be consistently taking it to feel the effects of it. Like if you have anxiety, like I have had pretty bad anxiety, so I'll just, I've been working with this like tincture blend and I do notice like I, I'll make a little bit calmer. Um, you seem cool. very calm right now. Are you under the influence of the tincture as we speak? No, I wish I was. I just I... ordered it though. <laughs> so wait, can you order these tinctures pre-made? You don't have to do all this distilling. No, no, you can, no, you just order them from like an herbalist. Okay. I bet LA has like really cool apothecaries and stuff. I'm sure there's like a tincture store near my house. I'll like, send you one. Yeah. I'll send you a Bradlisty tincture. Like, I'm trying to think of what I need. Are you anxious? Are you depressed? No, Do mean, you have I've... like a racing mind? Yes. Can you I mean, sleep at night? This is the right. Who doesn't? Uh, who doesn't? This is the human condition. I think I'm not like clinically depressed, and I don't have like I don't think an anxiety disorder. But I do experience blue feelings, and I can experience anxious thoughts in a natural sort of way. Um, I think there is like I think I have like you know dark sense of humor. Like there's like that dark corners of your mind. You know, some people have like a a lean towards darkness. I may have a little bit too much of that sometimes. So whatever tincture <laughs> will bring me back into the light. All right, maybe some lemon balm for you. Well, yellow, like I, you know, this is a silly thing to say, but my kids, because of their age, you know, you have to figure out what your favorite color is when you have children because they're going to want to know. It's like a big deal to kids. And so I have decided, and I think the podcast speaks to this as well. Like I truly do love the color yellow, like lemon yellow, because yeah. I feel like it's it just makes me happy to look at it. Like I love when I see a woman wearing a lemon yellow colored dress. I'm just like, well, that's just a lovely thing to do. Like, ah, you know, and like, I love being in a, I like being in a lemon grove. I've been in a lemon grove before and I'm like, this smells wonderful. Lemon trees smell great. It's just a good color. If you got to pick one, it's the color of the sun. I don't know. I don't want to overthink this, but I feel like maybe a lemon balm as a tincture could be a good fit for me. All right. You got it. One lemon balm tincture coming up. Um, all right. So I want to talk to you about, and uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, Ema? Yeah, you got it. Okay. Ema. So Ema is grandma. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, this book is this book is dedicated to Ema, which is what you called your grandmother, your maternal grandmother, right? Yeah. Yeah. My mom's mom. Yeah. 
And yeah. uh, this is the one with the dildo. <laughs> yeah, she's she had a dildo. I thought that was like fucking awesome when I found that. And we yeah. just like hid it from her husband because we knew it would make him feel bad because he, you know, like some guys that like, can't stand that. And he's one of those guys that like couldn't imagine, <laughs> probably couldn't imagine <laughs> that. But we were like, and we'll just. You should have just hide. like left. You should have just left it under his pillow, just like oh, some sort God. of. Actually, you know, to be honest, he might have not even known what it was, but yeah, um, there there are people who don't know what a dildo is. These, you know, they still do. Yeah, exist. It didn't look like it wasn't like like realistically looking like a dick or anything. It just oh. like was like big and purple and was like a vibrator. So, Got um, it. it wasn't like a classic dildo. Um, I just think dildo's a funny word, so. Can I, okay, yeah, it's definitely a funny word, and I have to ask, you know, uh, what did you do with it? Uh, I think we, like, put it in a garbage bag. Oh, I think we gave it, oh, God, I hope we <laughs> Goodwill. didn't do this. I feel like it might have, like, ended up in a Goodwill bag. Um, I really hope it didn't. Or we just hid it in the house somewhere. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you kind of got to throw it. it away. I mean, I know you can be sentimental, but I think you just you can't hang on to something like that. I have right? it right here, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I put it on a necklace. I wear it actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh no, yeah. That was like, yeah. We went through it. We after she died, my mom and I went back to her house and met up with my aunt and my cousin, and just the four of us went through her stuff, and it was a really nice bonding time. And we found that we were like, this makes sense. Like that she would. <laughs> This is all like this is totally her like and the and the purple it's just she loved the color purple so yeah. you know. we found like yeah it just like I maybe other people they find that they find their grandma's dildos I was just like it wasn't hidden or anything it was just like there it is like there, top drawer that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wasn't like a see it didn't feel like it was a secret or anything no it shouldn't be I mean you know whatever. Yeah. Gotta have a dildo. It's okay. And uh, I feel like too. I should say, I think I interviewed Joey on the, your brother on this, who is also a, a writer and a poet. Mm. And we got we got to get to that too. The fact that your parents produced two poets, which is um, interesting. But I want to say I talked to Joey for this show the weekend of your grandmother's funeral, or was it the weekend of her passing? You actually interviewed Joey. Uh, no, not the weekend of her passing. Cause she died in August and we were, we came back to LA like a month or so later, but, um, she, you interviewed Joey the day after, like we had her memorial service. And then the next morning we went and put her ashes in the ocean. And so, and then right after we did that, we drove Joey to your house. Right. But that was so, I mean, I think it was a good thing for him to go do that. Cause it was a positive thing and it was like really freeing to see her ashes. It was so beautiful. It, you know, they put them in the ocean with roses and um, the boat circles, the ashes, and it just makes this kind of whirlpool. And I just felt like I could see her spirit just totally free and happy. And she was pretty young. She was only 76. So it just, she died of cancer really fast and I felt like she never got to be old and that's what she probably, she never wanted to be an old lady. So what was the cancer? Was, what kind of cancer was it? She had lung cancer. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah, that'll get you. I mean, yeah, it happened. It was like one month she was like, I don't feel so good. And the next month they were like, you're going to die. Man. Yeah, it was intense. It was a really intense like three months. I, uh, and then that there's a service that takes you out to, to drop ashes in the ocean. Is it like a, there's a business yeah. that does this? Yeah. Cause I think if you want to, I, I actually think there might be something like legal about it. Like you can't just dump ashes anywhere oh, come um, on. in the ocean. I, I think there's there, I could be totally wrong, but I guess, I mean, how would they know? I was going to say dump. you can, you can dump like, uh, you know, 6 billion plastic bottles in the ocean, but God yeah. forbid we should like say goodbye to grandma in a beautiful yeah. setting. But it was nice. Like, yeah, they, it was like a nice thing cause they have a boat and. And how do you do it? Like everybody takes turns, like not to get, I mean, I, I hope this isn't a silly kind of question, but I think of I wind, the fun, but <laughs> what's that? I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't done it yet, but <laughs> spoiler <laughs> but alert. Cool. You don't like, well, <laughs> the one that we did, uh, they just put it in a basket and then they put the basket over the water and then they like release it. Um, okay. That makes sense. And it just drops like in the ocean. Um, cause you don't want, this is the thing. This is the thing. You don't want the cremains to like blow in the air and then like land on you. Yeah, you like have grandma in your mouth now, or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is what I'm trying to avoid. But that sounds nice. They have a system, is what I'm getting at. It was nice. It was really nice, and I like. Yeah, it was. It was cool. It was really beautiful. I hadn't seen um, her husband cry at all, and I saw him cry, and that meant a lot to me. Just to see him reduced to, to tears. To see him physically like grieve everybody grieves in their own way. But I think for me, like I just needed to see that. And I got to see that when we put our ashes in the ocean. I feel like um, too, it activates me. Like if somebody else is crying, then I start to get emotional. Like it, uh, yeah. I almost need like a permission structure or something, especially if it's like a primary griever, you know what I'm saying? If it's like just some guy I don't know in the church, but if it's like one of the immediate family members losing it, then I'm like, okay, like, I don't know. That has some sort of liberating effect on everybody else, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, yeah, to see like my uncle and these like men in my life cry was kind of important to me. You should have thrown her dildo into the ocean. I feel like that would have been (laughs) (laughs) just giving it like just an old, you know, huge heave, just like throwing it as far as you possibly could. And uh, as like a closing gesture. Yeah, that would have been beautiful, just like watching it like fly. <laughs> just one more plastic. I don't even know. I guess it's not plastic. It's uh, whatever they're made out of. Just some more silicone for the ocean. Um, yeah. Okay, but you dedicate the book to Ema. And like what I got, you know, if I, knowing a little bit about you and your family and um, about her, uh, just from stories that Joey has told me or you guys talked about her I think the day that your family showed up here um, back when I mm-hmm. used to do in-person interviews before the pandemic and stuff but um, she was like a free spirit she was like you said uh, in the poem uh, at the top of the episode she was kind of a badass um, and a liberated free-spirited woman yeah. and I feel like there's something feminist about your book, but also about your relationship with her and 
not only like as a grandma figure, but as like a role model figure, as like a, a model for how to be in the world. Yeah, she, I mean, I got so close with her. She meant more to me than I, it like, uh, kind of surprised me how, um, like intensely I felt close to her, but when she was dying, cause I, I talked to her like pretty often on the phone. We didn't live, she lived in LA and I lived in new Orleans. But when I was like, you know, the, the first part of my book is kind of about this intense experience I had, uh, getting an abortion in new Orleans and, uh, this fallout of this relationship. And, um, I talked to her about that and she was so supportive of me during that time would call me every single day to check up on me. And she knew the guy too. So she was kind of like really pissed that she met this guy and that this whole scenario happened. Um, but she helped me get through that would just check up on me every day. And that just felt good. Cause I, I felt really lonely. Like nobody was just asking me if I was okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I could just be really frank with her also. That's good. Um, it's good that you say that. I think it's important to point that out, um, especially around fertility. Like we had five miscarriages and I remember feeling there's a, I could, there's a sense of isolation in that. I know it's not exactly the same as an abortion, but it's kind of the same. It's a, the same. It's still a loss. It's the same genre. <laughs> yeah. I mean. It's, I think it, it's like a, it could be harder in some ways because you're trying to have a child and you just keep not being able to. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, and it's also like, it's like a loss that there is not a standard socially accepted framework for grief. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. if grandma dies, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And there's the funeral and there's the uh, ashes in the ocean. And we have these rituals, which I think perform a very necessary function in human existence. Like, we need these rituals so that we can have our uh, feelings recognized and we can acknowledge the person's existence and all this different stuff. But when it's the loss of a pregnancy um, via abortion, miscarriage, whatever it is, like that sort of stuff, like it's just not talked about. There's, there's nothing, I guess some people have little like taboo or something. Yeah. Or just like, I don't know. It's weird. I think maybe, I think maybe like with miscarriage, I don't know. It's like, you feel like a sense of like biological, I think women sometimes struggle. Like my wife sometimes struggled a little bit with like this sense of like, is there something wrong with my body? You know, like I, like, why isn't this working? You know what I'm saying? And so maybe you don't want to, like, talk about it out of some associated feelings of guilt or it's, – it's unnecessary. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just trying to, like, parse why it would, ha why it would be quiet. Another, another part about it, though, I think with, like, abortion, I feel like there's two sides of it. Like, okay, it's not talked about or it is, like, talked about where it, it's really normal to have an abortion. It's a normal procedure in women's health or it should be considered normal, which I agree with. Um, but just, like, the emotional uh, side effects of an abortion that, like, yes, I wanted to have an abortion. Yes, it was the right decision. And, like, yes, it also fucked me up. Like, <laughs> and I'm so happy that I did not have a child with that man, but I, it still messed with my head and my body was like, you know, my body thought 
it was pregnant and was like, I just kept thinking my body was like taking care of this like baby. And then all of a sudden in like a minute and a half, it wasn't. And it was just, um, I felt like I was like really confused why I was so sad. And I was like, I had started going to therapy and my therapist would just break it down to me just being like, you are grieving. Like, that's what this is. Like you're grieving. And, um, but yeah, I wish, I wish that that also wasn't like that we could be like abortions totally normal and like happens all the time and it's healthy and it's okay. And it's safe. It can be safe. And also it can be like emotionally like hard. And well, I think especially so many reasons why we get abortions like a lot of you know my situation isn't unique so right and i I just just feel like the issue is i think what you're getting at or at least partially getting at is that it's complex Mm -hmm. and i think too often the argument around it from either side of or from any perspective it's just so simplified and it drives me a little bit crazy um i feel like we need to have more uh, like uh, more conversations that acknowledge the gray as opposed to just thinking of it in such like binary black and white terms because yeah you know there's pain in every direction (laughs) do you know what i'm saying like um you know i just think people sometimes man they just want to see it one way and uh there's no there's no space you know for any other perspective and i guess it frustrates me because I feel like if you could have a good faith conversation about the human cost um, from both sides, there could be some deeper understanding or I don't know about middle ground, because at some point you have to, I guess people have, you're either for it or against it at some point, but do you know what I'm saying? I just feel like there, it seems like there should be a, a more nuanced conversation that's possible, that, that, that could be possible to have happen if people weren't so stuck. (laughs) Yeah. They don't want to think too hard about it. They want to like, I think a lot of people don't want to like, it takes a lot of effort to like think in this gray area. Right. And they just want it to be one way or the other. It's like either you're glad you did it or you're not glad you did it. Like you can't just be like, I'm really glad I had an abortion and it was really emotionally hard. And like all, you know, all the things that I said, just said, like, I can't have that. Right. <laughs> that. Like, I just, then it sounds like you regret it. And it's like, I definitely don't regret it at all. Like, um, but I can like reflect on that time and that it was really hard. Yeah. You wrote some poems um, about it. I mean, I right. Some, poems about it. some yeah. of the, I think, and, and I, I, I should say too, some of the most, I think emotionally affecting, but like that, there's one in particular that was really emotionally affecting, which is all about the abortion and definitely hits Mm -hmm. home yeah and that just like doing that in new orleans sucked because like we only have two clinics in the whole state that will perform abortions and uh it's not i've had friends that have had abortions in california and um have gone to like planned parenthood or they've just gone to their doctor and it's been a nice as nice of an experience as it can be um and when i tell them about what it was like to get it done in new orleans they're like it just, they're kind of surprised, but it's the South, it's the deep South. And, uh, a lot of people don't want us to have access to that procedure. So yeah, that's like the way it is. I mean, I was like, so surprised when they told me like, I could only get it done at this one place. And it was just, it was like a really shitty day. 
There was like a shitty two days. They make you go for two days. You can't just go for one day. You have to go sit at this clinic for two days. And it's pretty much two full days. Like since it is the only clinic, everybody has to wait for their turn. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty weird. Are there, were there like protesters or anything like that? Yeah, there's like a couple guys outside, but they look like they look like such bitches. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. You're just like annoying me. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, I you when I don't. I, it's been a you know, quite a few. It's been like five years since I've had an abortion there. Um, but uh, <laughs> when I was sitting in the room, like you are waiting, and like a bunch of the women are getting like worked up because they're just annoyed that you can hear this person yelling at you outside the window um and so like they're sitting in the room we're all sitting in this tiny room just like fuck those guys out there <laughs> like they don't know what the fuck we're going through <laughs> uh, and that's like kind of nice camaraderie and actually like this really weird experience happened um and if you've been to new orleans you know it is a small city you run into people all the time but i was like grocery shopping a few weeks after I had the abortion and I saw like one of the girls at the Whole Foods like um working her shift at Whole Foods and she like gave me a hug and that was really weird and I've never seen her again um but one of the women that were was there on the day that I got my abortion yeah we ran into each other and just checked in with each other you're like at the organic salad bar just like hugging it out or in the tincture section, I think, like <laughs> right. looking for something to calm me down. And I saw her. And, yeah, it was weird. I feel like it was like, you know, if you see your therapist out, you're not supposed to say hi to them or whatever. Right. Um, and so I saw her though, and it was nice to say hi. Yeah, that's and cool. hug each other. Like some sort of sisterhood. Totally. Yeah, it felt like that. Uh, it was nice. So you and your brother poets, book people. Mm -hmm. How did this happen? How do your parents produce two poets? Like, I, I don't know if I've, I think that's the only, this is the only instance that I can recall of talking to two people for this show who are siblings, both writers and both poets. Yeah. Um, well, our parents just read a lot and my dad is also a great writer. Uh, he's like, he wrote some plays in the eighties and he loves writing, um, short stories. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't like grow up loving books. Like I'm probably not, I think a lot of writers are like, I always loved reading from a young age. And I was like, not that person. I always wanted to be outside. Um, and, uh, so I didn't really fall in love with reading or writing until later. Um, what caused it? But, what, what, like, was it just a function of age and time and going to school or was it uh, something in your life, like circumstances? I think like, okay, I first started to think that I wanted to write or I started to get interested in that when I was in high school. I like one of my electives, uh, it was like the only class I did not fail because I was a horrible student. Um, and I don't even think I did that good in this class either, to be honest. Um, but for some reason, I was in journalism class. And for some reason, they like just assigned me to be editor of editorials, which is like just write about whatever you want um, and put in no effort. Have a take. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I 
I like writing about whatever I want. And, uh, and then that started to be fun. My dog is just like, let me go outside. <laughs> um, nope. Uh, but that's sort of when I started to get interested in that. And then I had a teacher that put some like Dorothy Parker poems in my hands. And that is when I felt like, oh, I really, I am interested in poetry. Um, but our parents were always, that was always the one thing that they supported. If we wanted to do anything creative, they were like, yes, you can do whatever you want. Um, if you're passionate about it, just try and we'll support you. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think Joey kind of had that too, but Joey always loved reading. He was like a big, big reader. He loves books. I tease your brothers he, because he's like, he yeah. fetishizes them. He loves them so much. <laughs> More than anybody I know. And I love reading now too. Um, and, but I, but Joey is like really, that's like all the only thing he cares about is books yeah. and getting more books yeah. well, <laughs> and reading all, more books. It's good. But I mean, you know, I, I feel like, I guess this is why we're talking. I guess this is why we're all in this, in this uh, situation where we're writing and trying to make books is that it just feels like a proportionate response to the fact of being alive and having to die. <laughs> Like what else? I, I don't understand how everybody's not doing this. Like what are we? Like what we're up against? And yet, you know, many people I know, including like dear friends of mine who are very smart people, they haven't read a book in years. You know, I yeah. I guess it's just how you're wired. You need it. Yeah, I feel like now it's like the only thing that I really like care about doing also like that I can be passionate about is like working on stuff. Sorry. My dog's just staring at me crying and it's, <laughs> it's like, does your dog need to go? Does your, is your dog going to have an accident if your dog does not go outside? No, she wants, there's like a guy working out on the front, I think on like one of the neighbor's yards or something. So she's like, wants to go. What kind of dog is it? Him. She's like a new Orleans mutt. Uh, I found her in the woods. She's like kind of a pit bull. Um, she kind of looks like Twiggy, actually, but a little bit more pit bully. Okay. Like your dog. Same color. Yeah. Same like orange. Or... Yeah, yeah. That's and a... like really lean and um, fast. Like yeah. She really can run fast. Yeah. yeah. So can Twiggy. It's like weird. Like I, like almost like a whippet or something. You know, she can really yeah. move. But I feel like uh, I want to say somebody told me that if the a dog's you know, born of enough crossbreeding, the color of like a, a, a super mutt, you know, is or, that orangey color. Like that's what it ends up as sort of like when you mix all the paints together and you get that brown. <laughs> yeah. That's like what my dog looks like. Oh. And, uh, and you found her in the woods. Yeah. I found her out in the woods on the edge of, uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, six years ago. Okay, yeah. so wait she was a just like running you, around. What are you doing in the woods? You're just in the woods? I just like went for a hike out there because like I heard that there was hiking out in this area and it is really funny to see people hiking on like flat land with like walking sticks like coming from California where you can like hike these beautiful trailer tra trails. Uh, but yeah, and I found my dog's name's Ruby. I found her out there like a tiny, tiny little puppy. Um 
just running around in the woods out there uh, chasing geese, living her best life. And then I took well, her to the city. probably starving. <laughs> she's starving and trying to find a goose to eat. I wish I could say, like, she looked starving, but she looked so happy. And, like, now that I know this dog, like, that's all. She, like, loves to get out and, like, run around. And when she was a puppy, she used to, like, escape the yard all the time. And, like, I'd get a call from a neighbor and they'd be like, I got your dog. Like, come get your dog. (laughs) Um, I don't think she was out there for that long. She didn't look like... Somebody dumped her, you think, out there? Like, just took her out? Yeah, like, I around to like the closest houses I could find and they were like yeah hunters just come out here and dump puppies and Ugh. Uh, but that's like that's like yeah. the rough like laws of country life or something like just get rid of the puppy yeah, I had an uncle my, yeah. uncle my uncle was joking with me he's like I don't know how serious he was but yeah he's like well, when we were young the dog gave you problems you just took a shotgun out and got rid of the dog (laughs) you know that sort of stuff that's like real real life (laughs) i'm like no (laughs) but but i feel like that's i feel like that's faded you meet your dog in the woods i mean come on you guys were meant to be together yeah Yeah, i know we've been through so much together like now you're podcasting together you're on this show she's like get stop fucking (laughs) take me i like took her on two runs today already but uh okay so let's talk let's talk about okay let's talk about this because uh i'm always fascinated about how writers work and if you know you're into tinctures you said you were hiking Mm -hmm. out at the mississippi border you've said you've been to therapy and you're anxious (laughs) all the things that writers are you know and people are but like do you uh, like have to move in order to feel sane like me. Like I have to do something or I feel like I go bananas. Yeah, I feel like totally. And I think running is great for that because it just calms you down so much. But that was like, I think that's another thing too from our, from like my childhood and maybe why like I like writing so much and is because my folks were always encouraging us like, okay, if you're not going to be reading a book, then like go outside, go for a walk, go roller skate, like just be doing something. And now I'm like that as an adult, (laughs) I'm like, we have to go do stuff. Um, but it's great where I just being able to walk on the levee. I think long walks are my favorite it's not real exercise but it's so good for thinking no no it is exercise and... it is exercise you're a flaneur yeah oh yeah i love <laughs> i love that word i, I know was like, it makes it sound so a... it makes it sound so like sophisticated i'm not just walking yeah. i'm a flaneur yeah. i'm a writer observing human phenomena there was a there was a book i think that came out a few years ago that's about that and about artists and walking the flaneurs or whatever, and how it was always reserved for men. Uh, only men could be a flaneur, but now, like, women are are like, oh, well, we've always been walking, too. Yeah. <laughs> is is like, that, was that Rebecca you know, Solnit? Is that, is that who wrote that book? Um, I think, I'm not sure. Maybe. Um, but I think walking, but yeah. I think walking is, uh, is a great thing to do. And it is exercise, especially, I mean, if you go for a, a five minute walk, it's probably not going to do much, but if you walk for an hour, that's a good outing. Yeah. And just living like right next to the levee, you are just walking up 
along the Mississippi River every day uh, with my dogs. It feels, yeah, I get so much thinking done. And it is kind of like a meditation. Um, and that, and then you, and then I can come home and work on, uh, work on whatever project I, I'm doing at that time, like, um, whatever writing I, I want to get done. What about, I feel like I'm ready to sit down and do it. You said you have two, you have more than one dog. Yeah. And so when Max and I got together, he, we got to, our dogs brought us together. Oh, this is adorable. <laughs> he has a dog. He has a dog that looks a lot like my dog and they just, his dog's name is Sonny and they like tear ass together and like are crazy. Well, we have the crazy dogs. I think everybody is always afraid of us when they see us coming with the dogs. Um, so, but you guys met like, this is like a, a meet cute at like a dog park or something. Like what happened? No, he, uh, I met him because he was like, he used to come get coffee from me when I was a barista and I just knew him in the community kind of, um, and he knew I had a dog. So his like move would always be like, we should get the dogs together. Yeah. We should get the dogs together. Yeah. And it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> huh. That's nice though, because I like, get a guy with a dog. I feel like that's a softener. I mean, not yeah. a, not every guy with a dog is a nice guy, but if a guy has a dog and the dog looks reasonably happy, at least that's a, a decent signifier. Yeah. And his dog, Sonny is like obsessed with him. Like, cannot do he's like it's annoying almost he like needs to be near max all the time and like could care less about anybody that's how, that's how twiggy is with me my dog she's with me right she's, yeah, it's a, she's right back there sleeping right now but um she's uh yeah. she's my girl but i do the most stuff with her i take her hiking and uh, you know i'm her person so yeah i think they like imprint on you or something um Ruby never cares about me except for right now. She's like decided that she wants to <laughs> to care about me. Something about me. It's something about me. She's like, I don't like this guy. He's asking you too many questions. Um, <laughs> so you like another theme in the book, you know, you have Max as your partner. You guys have this adorable dog bond. Uh, but, you know, there is a theme, I think, of of bad male behavior bad boyfriends, bad ex-boyfriends, the abortion, you know, just sort of being in relationships that don't work out for good reason. Um, and then you're also, uh, you know, you've been a waitress in New Orleans for a long time. And as like an attractive young woman working in that profession, I feel like you must witness terrible male behavior a lot. Am I yeah. wrong? No, you're, you're right. It's like, <laughs> uh, just any... I, I mean, there's so drunk people, like drunk men. Uh, this one restaurant I worked at just seemed to like be like a hangout spot for like asshole dudes that would like. Is this in uh, the quarter? Like, are you working in the quarter? This one restaurant I worked at was in was in the quarter. And I, when I first moved here, I worked there, and I was like 23, and um, I didn't really know that you couldn't just like tell someone not to touch you or I just thought we had to be like really polite and uh, just serve them. Um, so like I would get like drunk guys like, and a lot of women have this happen to them. I think at that restaurant or anywhere, I guess maybe that it happens, but um, just like grabbing you and 
kind of touching you a little bit inappropriately. And I just always thought that that was okay. And then I had one time where a guy like grabbed my leg, like too close to my ass, like, and, and I was like, that felt just really wrong. And maybe I will say something to my manager this time. And he was like, yes, tell me, like, we will kick them out. Like, but you, and I was like, oh, I just thought I had to be polite. Like, uh, because they're guests in our restaurant. And then, you know, I feel like I've shedded that a lot. Like if someone tried to do that to me now, I would. Dump some hot coffee in their lap. <laughs> piece of my mind. But I think another thing, cause you were asking me about this bond to Ema and, um, everyone in my family always says like that the way that I love is is the way that she, like I got it from her because she's really intense but they call me like the toned down version of her because I'm really affectionate um and I do really believe that love is the most like important thing in life like however it you can get it but I think when you're really sensitive um just a lot of people take advantage of that and so I think when I was younger, these bad, bad boyfriends or bad guys or whatever, I would just stay in these really bad or shitty situations for myself because I just wanted to prove like how good I could be at loving them. And I was very loyal. And I watched my grandmother, you know, she she's had some bad relationships in her life, too, and kind of stayed with men for too long, I think, um, that weren't very good for her. And um when she was dying, that was like the one thing she told me was like to find someone to treat me <laughs> nice, <laughs> um, which is kind of like a weird thing to hear from someone who's dying. But uh, I don't think so. You know, because she told Joey, she told Joey, like, oh, have great sex. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, have great sex. Like, I also would like to have great sex. But I think she was more concerned with she had just seen me go through all this shit with this, this one guy and this abortion and that whole time. And she's just like, don't just don't do that to yourself. Um, right, right, right. There's gotta be a baseline. Like, you know, relationships I think are always complicated, but there has to be a baseline of like decency and of treatment. You know, you can't tolerate somebody who's being abusive or just a monstrous asshole. Yeah, I don't think I like understood that. And it's not like I um I didn't have like I my parents had I watched them have a really solid marriage and friendship with each other. Um so I don't know where that came from and part of me just thinks it's like this inheritance I got from her. Um it could be and also like different circumstances. Like my parents dated for 3 months and they're celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year. Wow, yeah. Um and like, like I've never heard them barely raise a voice to one another. Like they're just buddies, you know, they've gotten along. I don't know. It was just always like solid. Like I, you know, they have a great marriage. Um, not perfect, I'm sure, but like no marriage is perfect. And it's, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things really good. And then I think about like the generation that I'm in, like me, my sisters, my cousins, like my mom comes from a family of nine not all of them are married. Seven of them are married, no divorce. Everybody happily married. My dad, his brother, happily married. But then in our generation, there have been 
more relationships that didn't work out and more upset. And I don't know if that's because of some sort of like genetic thing or if it's because of circumstance, maybe it's a combination, but or maybe they, yeah, they're just like, we don't actually have to be married if we don't want to. Yeah. And like, yeah, exactly. But different generations, like different economies, different stressors, different places, you know, living in different places, different, uh, social mores, you know, just different times, you know, they, my mom and my parents came of age in small town, Louisiana, as baby boomers, you know, riding that whole wave. Like, it's just a different world. Yeah, and I'm sure that there was, like, you have to get married really young and... Yeah, my mom got... My mom had a kid when she was 22. Yeah. That's crazy. Like, she was a kid. You know? Yeah. Like, my mom uh, was pretty young when she got married to my dad, but my dad was, like, 30-ish, I think. She was, like, 24. He's a little older than her. But they've, yeah. like, been through, I think... They've been through shit together, um, and I do remember them arguing a little bit when I was a kid, and now it's kind of nice just to have this relationship with my with my mom where she's really open with me about their marriage and stuff and not sugarcoating it like, oh, it was always perfect. Like She's like, we uh, had to like go deep and dive deep and come out on the other side. And that's right. If we that's right. That, and I think that I I think I've always admired that. And so I think I've ended up, I would like fall in love with someone that um, was like, was going to hurt me or, or did hurt me or whatever. Um, and thinking that that was the going deep part with them and that we were going to come out on the other side. Uh, and then just realizing, oh no, that's just abuse. That's just an abusive relationship. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, I don't need to do that. And also, right. and so, yeah, I, that would, that's a part of the book, I guess. And I think, yeah. And I think new Orleans is kind of this playground for a lot of people. It's, it is like, Oh, get drunk every night, party, whatever. And I've waited on all those people. <laughs> So, uh, God, yeah, I'm not waiting tables right now, but it, it like is pretty, it's pretty rough. I think you, who was the woman, um, you had on, I listened to her interview. It was last week. She's a teacher. Um, oh, Shannon McLeod. Yeah. She, and, um, she's like talking about teaching and some, I, I loved listening to her talk cause I'm about to do a teaching a teacher's trainer training to get my um, English teaching certificate. But she was saying like her friends are like, come wait tables. Like you'll make fast money and it's so much better. And I'm like, God, but like, I just am like getting off that train. And it's like every shift is 10 hours, no breaks, no food, get treated like shit. Do you make, is the money worth it? Like, is it... <laughs> Is it that much more money? Is it? I don't know. Sometimes I mean, it's not. It depends. Yeah, right. I mean, if you have a good shift and it's people are generous, it's like the holidays or something. You can make some probably some good money. But um, I think in every job, just about every job, I would imagine there's just going to be some shit that you hate. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not. Yeah, nothing's. It's going to get old. Like you know, you become a teacher. There's going to be parts of it that wear you out, but at least you have the benefit 
of knowing that you're making a, a difference in kids' lives and you're doing something that's positive and non-toxic. Um, and you know what? If you're a waitress and you're bringing people food and making them happy in that way, like there's there's no knock against food service uh, professionals. Like that's a that's a noble thing to do as well. But um, you know, you just have to do what feels best for you. And there's, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck to do. You know, like, I don't know. I, I wish I were one of these people who's just like, I know my mission. And I think writing is my mission and doing this show is my mission. But like, you know, it's also hard to like carve out a living doing it. Um, you yeah. know, so you have to, you have to wind up doing other things, you know, it's just the nature of it. Yeah. I mean, I've met some of like the greatest people working in the food service industry like some of my best closest friends who are just brilliant and so funny and would help me get through long shifts like there is like a lot of camaraderie that happens my um, best friend my best friend in the world like longest you know one of my longest friends from when i was a kid has been a waiter since he was 14 he's still doing it <laughs> yeah some people are like there are, there are uh, I, in new orleans because we have a lot of white tablecloth restaurants um, places like that, you know, um, there are like a lot of career service industry people here. And that is a way, I mean, it's such a tourist driven city that that is kind of like one of the few options, um, for a career path. I just feel like I don't want to do it anymore. Like I want to do, I got to try something else, but it's always there. Like, I can always go back and can you, can you take an order without writing it down? Yeah, but I fucked up so many orders doing that. Like <laughs> I could do it. Like, uh, the last restaurant I worked at who, like, I love those guys so much. Um, that place is called Paladar and I would do it there. Um, and cause I knew the menu so well. And, but even then I would still fuck up every once in a while, I'm but they were like, I'm mystified by people who can do that. It's always, it makes the, the customer nervous. I think when they don't see the waiter writing stuff down, they get like worried. You're going to forget. That's good something. though. It puts it, it puts them, it puts them off balance. They're like nervous for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I want but, you to be uncomfortable. Yeah. This Paladar, the people there, they were like, if you fuck something up, it wasn't going to be, you know, the chef wasn't going to freak out at you and like make you like cry or anything. So it felt like a safe place. If you made a mistake, um, it was going to be okay. No one was going to like have a meltdown. And I've worked at restaurants where like, if you make the smallest mistake, a chef will just like freak the fuck out, break shit and like that stuff is really toxic and can be really, really hard, I think. And for some people, it's like really traumatizing also because you don't know like who you're freaking out at. Um, it, it's just not a good, good, healthy environment. Would you like to go on the record and name this chef? Oh, I <laughs> named him in my book. His name's Phil. Oh, you did? Okay, Phil. Yeah. Calm uh, down, Phil. Yeah, I, I like love telling that guy to calm down. Um, <laughs> no, he doesn't. He does. He'll never listen to this. He doesn't think I'm smart. No, hey, 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 listen, you never know. You never know. He could be a fan of the show. Oh, I'm going to send him this episode. <laughs> See, you, 
the dogs barking. Hi, Ruby. Good girl. Um, well, listen, I loved your book and uh, congratulations on it. It's nice to see your face and to talk with you. Did we get to everything? Did I miss anything? What am I supposed to ask you? I don't know. I think we Thanks got it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we got it. We got that. We covered. I think your brother's going to be like, why didn't you talk about me more? <laughs> well, Joey, we love you. You're a good brother. Yeah, you're doing you're doing great, Joey. And uh, hi to your parents. I love them as well, Joe and Patty. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the podcast, Grantham family people. Thanks. All right, there it is. That's Mick Grantham. Her debut poetry collection is called Hardcore. It is available now from Short Flight Long Drive Books. Go get your copy immediately. Hardcore by Mick Grantham. You can find her online at uh, disorderpress.com. That's a little press she runs with her brother. You can follow that on Twitter at disorderpress. One more time, the collection is called Hardcore by Mick Grantham. Go get it. Do it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen to this program regularly, if you like it, if you get something from it, support it if you can. Tip your server, throw a couple of bucks in the hat for as little as $1 a month. You can become a supporter of this podcast over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can get a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker. I'll wish you a happy birthday. I'll write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me, you can write to the show. The email address is letters at otherppl.com. Maybe I'll read your letter on the air. Letters at otherppl.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at otherppl. The official website is otherppl.com. This program has its own official app. Have I mentioned that? The app is also free. Go get the app. The Other People with Brad List, the app available wherever your apps are available. What do I have coming up on this program? Let me try to figure it out here. I don't remember. I can't keep up with myself. Oh, a great con a conversation with Gina Nutt, who has an excellent essay collection out on $2 Radio called Night Rooms. Fun time meeting Gina Nutt. That's coming up next week on the Other People program. Stay tuned. All right? Be well. Take care of yourselves. Go outside. You don't have to wear a mask. Go for a walk in the sunshine. Breathe. Enjoy. Air. Air. <laughs>